Bitcoin is a protocol stack which we can expect to be expanding for many decades, and its foundation is that lean, simple database defended by the world's strongest firewall, the Bitcoin blockchain. In sum, we recommend to not worry about diversification in cryptocurrencies and to focus exclusively on Bitcoin. It's the right tool for the job, so pick it up and add it to your toolbox. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are on read 743 today, and we're getting pretty close to a thousand episodes with all the guys' takes and the basics and the chats, um, uh, which is kind of crazy. A thousand episodes is a lot of freaking episodes. I've been doing this for a long damn time. Uh, but we have got a, uh, I've read, I think this will be the third of the Adamant uh, Capital or adamant research um reports uh and turtemeister i want to say he is the main author of this report um i could actually be wrong about that i'm not 100 percent sure they just kind of say adamant research um and uh and then the forward is by tur so if i'm wrong about that i apologize um but uh tur has been doing really great analysis uh in this regard for a really long time and i'm a big fan of turtemeister's work i mean he's always very grounded down to earth and very analytical, very, very straightforward about the way he positions things or the way he um, breaks things down, in my opinion. You know, Lynn Alden has that kind of aspect, too, that I really appreciate is she is she's very practical about the analysis and investigations that she digs into. Tur is like that. Adamant Research has always had really great reports in this regard, um, really ob- objective in broad views, not like short-term trading stuff. They've always just had a great, they're the best bear market report for a lot of the things that I cover. And, uh, and it was exciting to see them uh, drop their recent one titled How to Position for the Bitcoin Boom. This will be in two parts. I won't be able to do all of, uh, all of it today, um, but I will have the other one, uh, the other part out tomorrow. I am almost done recording, but I wanted to go ahead and get the first part out today before digging into kind of the specifics of what a portfolio ought to have and how to position based on what you are trying to capture in the potential the potential next cycle of the Bitcoin market. So if you were looking for a good time to get into Bitcoin and or you were trying to change your position or change your outlook and invest away from the quote unquote crypto market, this is definitely the piece for you. So real quick, I just want to thank Fold and CoinKite and the cold card. Uh, Fold for giving me a de- debit card that gets me sats back on literally everything that I do. And the cold card and CoinKite, every, all the devices and amazing products and services that they have with CoinKite in keeping those Bitcoin safe. For June, Fold has 100,000 free sats just to try out the card, which you can do in-app in a matter of minutes. It's a virtual card. You can just buy something online, and they will literally pay you 100,000 sats. 
And then CoinKite, you can get 9% off the cold card with code Bitcoin Audible. All of that will be right in the show notes, so don't forget to check it out. With that, let's get into today's read. And it's titled, How to Position for the Bitcoin Boom by Adamant Research and Unchained. Introduction At Adamant Research, we pride ourselves in speaking up when investor apathy rules the day. Each time we published one of our Bitcoin reports in 2012, 2015, and 2019, it was during periods of significant undervaluation, once more so today. At 60% below its 2021 all-time high, we believe the current bear market represents an exceptional opportunity for value investors. Investors and fund managers likely do themselves a favor by keeping an eye on Bitcoin. Turdem Easter from the report in November 2012, Bitcoin at $11. During each of its cycles, Bitcoin has faced significant challenges, and each time it more than lived up to those challenges. Today is no different. We see extraordinarily strong fundamentals, robust and sustained technological progress, and an unparalleled level of conviction among longtime Bitcoin investors, all ready to fuel a global buying spree and sustained new adoption. During this accumulation phase, we expect for Bitcoin to trade in a range of 22,000 to 42,000 until a new multi-year bull market pushes it well north of 120,000. We maintain that the risk-reward ratio for Bitcoin the currency is currently the most favorable of any investment in the world. Adamant Research, the November 2015 report, Bitcoin at $300. Some of the conclusions suggested by this report. Blockchain analysis indicates that Bitcoin is undervalued. Bitcoin is on the brink of decoupling with stocks and crypto. The global macro predicament is a powerful tailwind for Bitcoin. Bitcoin startup investing is complicated yet attractive. Bitcoin nation-state adoption is set to become a big theme. Collaborative custody is a good option for novice investors. We assert that the long-term risk-reward ratio for Bitcoin is currently the most favorable of any liquid investment in the world. We expect for it to trade in a range of 3,000 to 6,500, after which we foresee the emergence of a new bull market. Adamant Research, report from April 2019, Bitcoin price at $5,200. A common phrase among Bitcoin enthusiasts is, fix the money, fix the world. In this report, we focus on understand the money, understand the world. Enjoy. Turdem Easter, Editor-in-Chief. Disclaimer. This report is solely educational and has not been catered to your individual circumstances, and as such, any action or inaction which you may contemplate based on the contents herein should be made in consultation with your personal, legal, tax, and financial advisors. The authors and publishers of this report may hold some of the assets mentioned or equity in the companies mentioned. Nothing in this report or its associated services constitutes professional or financial advice of any kind, including business, employment, investment advisory, accounting tax, and or legal advice. Nothing in this report or its associated services constitutes or forms a part of any other offer or sale or subscription of or any invitation to offer or buy or subscribe for any of its securities, nor should it or any part of it form the basis of or be relied upon in connection with any contract or commitment whatsoever. Risk Disclosure Crypto assets are a highly volatile asset class. The value of crypto assets can go down as well as up and you can lose your entire investment. When held by custodians, crypto assets are often not insured and are usually not covered by national compensation schemes. 
Part 1. As an investor, why do I care about Bitcoin? Bitcoin is wasteful. Bitcoin isn't backed by anything. Bitcoin is too volatile. Bitcoin is the slowest, most expensive database on the planet. Bitcoin is too private. Bitcoin is not private enough. Any or all of these criticisms could convince us to discard it. If Satoshi Nakamoto's invention didn't have any redeeming features. Bitcoin is probably rat poison squared. Warren Buffett, 2018. Bitcoin price, $9,800. What this elaborate network makes possible, though, for the first time in history, is true scarcity for the digital world, fully autonomous ownership, and a permissionless global network for financial transactions. Because of its ingenious proof-of-work mechanism, Bitcoin has been able to become a digital gold with an unprecedented robustness and openness. 14 years of operation with an uptime of 99.988%, and anyone with access to an off-the-shelf phone and an internet connection can gain permissionless access to the network in minutes. This is why we call it the most disruptive technology since the invention of the internet. To illustrate, these are some of the areas in which Bitcoin with a current market cap of $0.5 trillion directly competes with existing infrastructure. Remittances, an annual volume of $0.7 trillion. U.S. Treasury inflation-protected bonds, $1.7 trillion. Payments revenues, globally, $2 trillion. All the paper money in the world, $8 trillion. Above-ground physical gold, $9 trillion. Central bank reserves, $27 trillion. Currency deposits worldwide, cash claims on banks, $62 trillion. Residential real estate worldwide, $258 trillion. Bitcoin savers are in the company of legendary investors such as Bill Gross, Bill Miller, Stan Druckenmiller, Peter Thiel, Paul Tudor Jones, Ray Dalio, Alan Howard, and Lee Ka-shing, Hong Kong's wealthiest person. They rub proverbial shoulders with business leaders such as Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, and Ricardo Salinas Pliego, as well as with iconic executives such as Tim Cook at Apple, Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy, Vikram Pandit at Citigroup, and Rick Ryder, BlackRock. But all of the above might still make the investor shrug. So you've built a better mousetrap. Why should I care? Well, we respond, consider that our existing monetary system is running on fumes, with accelerating debt and inflation increasingly destabilizing the global economy. The unsustainability of the problem bears similarities, ironically or not, with the Great London Horse Manure Crisis of 1894, where 50,000 horses produced over a million pounds of fresh dung every day, creating in turn an infestation of billions of flies, spreading typhoid fever and other diseases among the population. The despair was such that the London Times wrote, In 50 years, every street in London will be buried under nine feet of manure. Similar to 1890s London, most people today are aware of some fundamental issues with the financial system. U.S. money supply increased by 25%, or $7 trillion, since the pandemic. Since 2020, the minimum reserve requirement for U.S. banks is 0%. 186 U.S. banks face collective unrealized losses of $1.7 to $2 trillion. If the $10 trillion in outstanding U.S. deposits suffered a bank run, FDIC's own reserves could only cover 1.26% of that. 
Government debt in the G7, the most economically advanced nations in the world, is the highest since World War II, at 128% of GDP. Additionally, aspects of the monetary system strike many as antiquated. 1.4 billion people in the world still don't have access to a bank account. Sending money to relatives abroad costs roughly 6% of the full amount. Money is digital, but banks still can't settle a transaction on a Sunday. Now, if you'd ask people in the street or horse carriage drivers for an answer to the manure problem in 1890s London, they would probably argue for some type of improved manure collection system, a makeshift band-aid, rather than for a structural, robust solution. And that's what we're seeing today in the financial system, a plethora of half-hearted attempts to somewhat stabilize inflation in the short run, as well as various proposals for central bank digital currencies that don't strike at the root of the problem, i.e. the practice of printing money out of thin air. No, the real solution, just like a century ago with the automobile, is likely to be a paradigm shift, a new technology for the digital age that can grow into a universally accepted store of value. That is what Bitcoin is, a full reserve bank for saving in cyberspace, with the promise of evolving into a reliable and politically neutral money. I think we're not paying attention to the law of unintended consequences. We take decisions with an objective in mind and rarely think through what may happen that is not our objective. We act sometimes like eight-year-olds playing soccer. Kristalina Georgieva, IMF Managing Director, April 2022. Part 2. Blockchain Analysis Indicates Undervaluation Further in this report, we'll talk more about the fundamental reasons why Bitcoin is here to stay for the long term. But as we all know, it is an incredibly volatile asset. So let's first look at some data to determine if it is worth our time today. The special thing about Bitcoin having an objective ledger, which records every transaction settlement, is that it allows for analysis that is usually impossible for other asset classes. Let's mine some of that data here below to answer the question, is Bitcoin undervalued? 1. Blockchain suggests Bitcoin whales are holding. Knowing what, quote, insiders are doing is always considered to be useful. As potential investors in a certain asset class, we want to know what the most experienced and wealthy people in that market are doing with their portfolio. As it happens, the information on the Bitcoin blockchain allows us to approximate exactly that. The Holdler net position change is a metric that shows us whether whales, the people controlling the oldest coins in the highest quantities, are moving their Bitcoins around, which correlates with selling behavior or whether they are stoically holding onto their positions because they think Bitcoin is still undervalued. As you can see, in the past, the whales tend to sell into strength during periods of exuberance. That is clearly not the case now. Bitcoin whales are waiting for higher prices. 2. Current Sentiment Optimism Another measure, which we also used in our 2019 report, Bitcoin in Heavy Accumulation, is called Net Unrealized Profit or Loss. Here's how it works. Using the blockchain, we can determine the dollar value of each Bitcoin at the time it last moved. That way, one can calculate for the aggregate of all Bitcoins in existence whether the market is experiencing unrealized losses or unrealized gains. 
As we all know, when we look at a certain investment that we've made in the past, it usually makes a strong psychological difference whether that investment is in the green or, quote, in the red. This is the reason we use this on-chain metric as a sentiment indicator. After the failure of several crypto companies in 2022, the NUPL, or the Net Unrealized Profit and Loss, signaled heavy unrealized losses, or capitulation. Recovery began in early 23, and with the recent Wall Street bailouts, sentiment has jumped from hope to optimism. Quote, In my opinion, this is a Bitcoin panic, not a depression. Example, the panic of 1907, the last major financial crisis before the Federal Reserve was founded. Its cause was overconfidence expressed in overleveraging and shady activities after a long period of huge, genuine productivity gains in the U.S. economy. I see similarities with this Bitcoin panic. In 1907 and 1908, the stock market completely recovered in 18 months. Turtam Easter, June 2022. Part 3. Lower Bitcoin Price? Credible Catalysts. Now that we've established that Bitcoin is likely undervalued, the question arises, what if it dwindled down again? And why would I buy now if its price could, for example, drop by 40% once more? We'll get into some specific investment strategies later on in this report, but let's first address some of the headwinds that Bitcoin still could face in the third year since it printed the all-time highs of summer 2021. 1. Possible Headwind Liquidations of Known Coin Hoards No single party controls the Bitcoin network, and as a consequence, its assets are extremely saleable. Anyone who owns Bitcoin can, at any time, choose to offer them for sale. As such, during every bear market, the fear arises that large coin hoards will be dumped on the market, causing a big additional slump in the price. Let's first cover some of the least likely scenarios, and then talk about the ones that might need to be taken more seriously. Our first scenario is a classic. The idea that Satoshi Nakamoto mined 1 million bitcoins back in 2009, which is argued by BitMEX and others is based on weak evidence, and that he could liquidate those coins willy-nilly. To this, we respond that even if one goes along with all these assumptions, there's not a clear reason why Satoshi or his heirs would choose this bear market as the environment to initiate a monster sale like that. Likelihood? Very low. Second, there is the notion that Bitcoin miners have collectively been hoarding Bitcoins during the 2019-2021 to bull market, and now that they are under pressure facing bills and interest payments on their debt, they'll choose to liquidate these coins. There is significant evidence that that's already happened in 2022, and that actually the miners' aggregate debt positions have become much more manageable. Likelihood? Very low. Next, there are the coins held by the trustee of the MT Gox estate, one of the largest exchanges in Bitcoin's history that declared bankruptcy in April 2014. Those 141,686 Bitcoins, approximately 0.7% of the Bitcoin supply, will be returned to the customers who owned them sometime in 2023. We don't think this event will make a dent in the Bitcoin price, though, because MT Gox's duped customers have long had the opportunity to sell their claim to interested hedge funds, who are either structurally long Bitcoin or positioned in a price-neutral way via hedging. Likelihood, very low. Another bearish scenario would be if, after last year's panic and bankruptcies, another large crypto company was to bite the dust. If its self-reported data is accurate, the current largest crypto exchange in the world is Binance. As we've seen with previous incidents at large exchanges such as MT Gox in 2014 and Bitfinex in 2016, a Binance bankruptcy would likely cause a sell-off in Bitcoin. 
and there are a few reasons to worry that Binance may not have full reserves to fend against a true run on the bank. For one, after a blockchain analyst blew the whistle, the exchange recently admitted that its stablecoin BUSD has not always been one-to-one backed by collateral, as stablecoins ought to be. Amid reports that large amounts of Bitcoin were being withdrawn, Binance released what it called a proof of reserves. However, this was criticized by industry leaders as a noisy, incomplete, and therefore suspect way of commenting on its solvency. Given the legal headwinds against many crypto exchanges and the strongly declining value of non-Bitcoin crypto tokens, both of which can lead to mass withdrawals from exchanges, we think 2023 will remain a year to watch. However, just like how the failure of a gold bank wouldn't necessarily affect the overall gold price, we think the effect on the Bitcoin price would be short-lived. Likelihood, medium. 2. Could Bitcoin see a legal crackdown? In our previous Bitcoin reports, we never gave the political world much attention. But now for the first time, we feel the need to address it. After 2022's crypto panic, which included the collapse of the crypto exchange FTX, the downfall of crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital, the bankruptcy of broker lender Genesis Global, the failure of crypto lenders BlockFi and Celsius, the crypto industry faces the most intense political scrutiny in its history. Could this affect Bitcoin as well? Our analysis below focuses on the situation in the United States, as it has the most capable and far-reaching law enforcement around the world, meaning that American laws and regulations will likely be the most impactful for the international community of Bitcoin investors. For Europe, Latin America, Asia, Africa, and Oceania, we believe the legal reality will vary greatly, and we'll see a growing polarization emerge. Some countries will embrace Bitcoin, see our section about nation-state adoption, whereas others will actively try to discourage citizens from using or holding it. When could Bitcoin be targeted? Well, one could argue that this is already happening. In order for companies to offer Bitcoin for sale, they need a bank who is willing to work with them. And, coincidence or not, several of these banks have effectively gone into controlled bankruptcy after facing bank runs in March of this year, thus diminishing the amount of on-ramps available for investors. Then again, recently brokerage giant Fidelity started offering Bitcoin trading to all its 40 million account holders. Others will likely follow. Still, on the legislative front, Bitcoin is fairly unaffected by the political probing into crypto, because that is mainly about a crackdown on fraud relating to securities, i.e. investment contracts marketed to retail investors. Regulators who want to take action to prevent the next crypto panic or who are looking to diminish tax fraud, could undermine the ability for Bitcoiners to self-custody digital assets, or for existing custodians to store Bitcoins for their customers. There are some legislative initiatives that could affect Bitcoin by, for example, a change in the travel rule, or changes in money transfer laws. But with a divided Congress, those are unlikely to gain much traction until Bitcoin is much bigger. The more serious political threats to Bitcoin will happen when it is perceived to threaten the position of the dollar, and for that it would need to be a magnitude larger than it is today. In the medium term, the most likely scenario is that, amid rising geopolitical tension, the US will use its leverage in the financial world to cordon off Western firms from offshore Bitcoin exchanges. And so in sum, the most likely period during which Bitcoin could be targeted would be when a new BTC price melt-up makes headlines in conjunction with widespread concerns over inflation of the US dollar. 3. What if Bitcoin is seen as a threat to the dollar or other fiat currencies? 
In the case of a major geopolitical crisis, such as a military confrontation between China and Taiwan, a strong rise in food inflation, or aggressive trade wars and protectionism, the stability of the international monetary and financial system would come under serious threat. In that case, the entire focus of the Western political world will become to ensure stability. And because a major Bitcoin rally is a potential signal of instability, it could become the subject of hot debates. Journalists would ask questions like, is the rise in Bitcoin signaling a loss of confidence in the U.S. government? In terms of political response, there are two strategies we see as plausible in that scenario. One is a rhetorical strategy, an appeal to unity or nationalism by broadcasting the claim that using Bitcoin is unpatriotic, for example, by calling it extremist money, which it isn't, or saying that it contributes to global warming, which it doesn't. The other strategy would be more aggressive, for the government to outright try to physically restrict access to Bitcoin, either by boycotting the dollar on-ramps, or by outright making its use a punishable offense. The latter, an outright ban, seems unlikely to happen in the U.S. for three reasons. First, adoption is already quite widespread, likely similar to internet adoption in the year 1995, which means it would anger a substantial voter base. Second, a prohibition of Bitcoin ownership would be fought in the courts because it violates basic constitutional liberties. Thirdly, such a ban would be very hard to enforce, leading to a Streisandian embarrassment most governments are keen to avoid. Finally, comparisons with the 1933 gold confiscation by FDR, Executive Order 6102, should be made with some caution, as the US dollar at the time was directly pegged to the gold price, whereas no such link between the dollar and Bitcoin currently exists. 4. Would a market crash cause Bitcoin to tailspin? Bitcoin is often touted as being correlated with traditional markets, implying that if the markets crash, inevitably, so will Bitcoin. However, when looked at from a multi-year perspective, that perspective is clearly false. Bitcoin quite regularly decouples from traditional markets. For example, during its epic rallies in 2013, 2017, and 2021, Bitcoin left traditional markets completely in the dust. Over the medium term, we find that these bullish moves are strongly correlated with increases in global fiat money supply. Translation, by investors around the world, Bitcoin is increasingly used as a hedge, a safeguard against excessive money printing. It is, of course, true that Bitcoin is an extremely liquid asset, as good as or even better than cash in the bank. And so when investors find themselves too exposed to leverage, as often is the case during a market downturn, they will resort to selling some to avoid being margin called. That said, in the case of another equity market downturn, because Bitcoin has already been through so much deleveraging since the summer of 2021, we think it's unlikely it would see a major and long-lasting sell-off. Given the global and terminal addiction to monetary stimulus, we don't see stock market weakness result in sustained demand for long-term bonds. We see it rather drive confused and concerned investors to buying hard assets like commodities, metals, and Bitcoin as a protection shield. In sum, Similar to how gold behaved in 2008, in the case of a stock market crash, we would likely see an initial price dip in Bitcoin, followed by a continued bull market. Part 4. What to Buy Alright, that is where we are going to pause right now before they kind of get into the more concrete uh details or recommendations and this is not investment advice obviously we read the disclaimer and everything but um uh, i think they have a very good um a uh, very good mental model for 
how to um, think about allocating from a far more general view rather than, you know, my typical advice of just go 100% into Bitcoin all the time, always, and you should center your life around it because it's fascinating and it's the most important thing that's happening in the world, um, so <laughs> which is not very useful to a lot of people, especially people new in the space. But there's a really great analogy that they use a little bit later on in the piece that um, I think is a really smart perspective is if you were in the 1990s and you could purchase an internet ETF, like a general internet ETF, rather than buying stock in Google or Amazon or anything, you could just buy a share of the internet. And if the internet grew and became more valuable and became, you know, more feature rich and, um, more integrated into all of our lives as time went on, that it would grow in value in accordance to what its value is in society. Would you want to have any of that internet ETF? So that's something to think about and a little bit of a preview for part two. Really quick, let's hit our sponsor and then we'll jump back in on a guy's take. I am really curious what you guys do with your fold sats. So, uh, I mean, the fold debit card, you know, is a, a debit card that you should use to replace your normal bank debit card because you literally get sats back on everything that you do. I mean, if you're not earning Bitcoin buying your groceries, um, paying your bills, uh, if you're not getting 1% back plus a bunch of spins to get all sorts of various uh, sat rewards uh, based on those spins, including up to winning an entire Bitcoin on the spin wheel. But if you're not doing that, then you're doing fiat wrong. But uh, as I have said on the show before, I had, after doing this for like two years, I've just let my sats accumulate. And I had about, it's somewhere like 6,500 or 6,600 just because of this recent little run up in price. But it's 22 million sats that I've gotten just because I use, just because I use this debit card as my only, as my main driver for everything. And I also use as many gift cards as possible through the app. Uh, just because you get even more sats back for those. But that is a substantial amount of money, and I am using those sats to reinvest into Bitcoin development. I am finally putting it towards a project that I think is going to be really valuable and I think is going to be great for sovereignty and having better, more direct, more private, and more secure communications uh, on the internet. And I think that's really awesome that the Fold debit card, that Fold has just kind of given me this capital that I am able to direct towards this. So I'm really curious, what are you guys spending your sats on? What are you guys using your sats for? Are you just putting them in the cold storage? Are you just putting them on your cold card? Are you going on vacation? Are you finally buying that tool or that computer that you've always wanted? I'm very curious how you use your Fold sats. So tag me on Twitter, maybe with like hashtag fold stack or something. Um, and uh, so, yeah, let's let's do a hashtag. Do the hashtag fold stack. Uh, tag me on Twitter or shoot me a DM or uh, send me a message on Fountain or on Noster. Hit me up on any one of those platforms and uh, let me know. I'm I'm really curious. How many stats do you have? Uh, how many sats have you stacked with your fold card and what are your plans for it? What are you going to do with your fold stack? Hashtag fold stack. Hit me up. Let me know. Don't forget. Also, if you haven't tried out your fold card, um, you can get a hundred thousand free sats until the end of June, just for signing up and trying out the card for the first time. The link to that will be in the show notes. Please don't give up like $30 in free sats. 
That's like a whole house in 10 years or something. So the first thing I want to bring up about this, and one thing in this article talking about the idea of Bitcoin as a store of value and what the utility of a store of value is, because I think most people don't understand or at least don't have a, an informed perspective of what store of value means and how it arises in the network, how it arises in an economic network. And one of the things that's really interesting, especially if you go back to Mises' regression theorem. So uh, from Austrian economics, Mises' regression theorem is about the idea that, or the concept that money has to have some other utility before it becomes money. That if you take, if you regress, if you trace a money all the way back to its original source before it became a money, the good itself, that it was used for something that it had some other utility. And there's a very specific reason why, is it has to establish a market value for some reason. But that's the key thing, is that just because monetary goods in history have always been some physical thing with some physical utility, which actually technically isn't the case. There's a lot of examples of purely collectibles and kind of jewelry elements, and then of course the rye stones of the islands of Yap, that they had purely, I mean, 100% subjective concepts of value, which means that literally all it has to do is create a market price, and then if it has those the good monetary characteristics necessary for it to sustain, then it can become a store of value. And after it settles itself as a store of value, it becomes a medium of exchange and a unit of account. And this is kind of the inevitable path. It's like the, it's, it's maturation, you know. You can't be an adult without having been an infant and then a child and toddler and uh, teenager first. They are prerequisites and they define the very process itself of becoming an adult. Money is very similar in that way. This is why, and if you look at history, um, when you look at anything that had like a utility that ended up becoming money, it's really, really interesting because what ends up happening uh, largely, depending depending on the, the eventual scarcity of the money. So one of the elements, like a great example is salt. Salt was incredibly potent and a widespread monetary good for a long time. That's actually where the word salary comes from. Uh, are you worth your weight in salt? There's a lot of monetary ling uh, language that we actually hold today, which is actually derived from salt being an incredibly valuable good. And it had a lot of those critical characteristics of money. You know, salt is salt is salt. Uh, it's, it's fungible, roughly. Um, salt is very easily divisible. You can, you know, as a powder, as a, as a very fine grain, uh, you can have, you can trade very small amounts of it or very large amounts of it. And very large, a very large amount of it is still the same thing. So it's divisible and uniform. Whereas a big chicken and a small chicken are not the same. You know, one might not have any meat on it. One might be a healthy chicken. One might be a sick chicken. That's why we don't use chicken as money on top of the fact that it obviously degrades heavily. Uh, and therein lies another one of those characteristics that we have seen arise and we, we understand as a critical element of what money is. Durability. And the fact that it doesn't rot. It doesn't degrade over time. This is why gold is one of the most, it's historically, it's this weird perfect spot up until the digital age for, uh, for use as a monetary good. It 
basically doesn't degrade at all. It's insanely stable. I mean, if you find gold coins from 30,000 years ago, which we have no record that they existed that long ago, but regardless, if we found gold coins from 30,000 years ago, you can still just melt them down into fresh, beautiful gold. So what happens when a good is scarce enough and it has the characteristics of money and it develops some sort of value for any reason is what slowly happens is it becomes clear that one can simply hold on to this thing because it has the characteristics to hold on, to, to literally hold it for extended periods of time and still be able to exchange it later for some other thing because somebody is probably going to want it. Well, then its value in the market becomes inflated, not, not for just its utility, but for the fact that other people might just want to hold it for an extended period of time in order to trade it for something else later. That the thing itself would be consistent across time and scales and location. That no matter where you take it, it's the same good. No matter how much you have or how little you have, it is relatively equivalent. Like it is proportionally equivalent to the value of the total amount. Just like a third of a house isn't worth a third of a house, it, that requires a whole lot of work. It's useless until it's an entire house and it's actually shelter. But um, if you have a, you know, a third of a gold coin, it's worth perfectly exactly a third of a gold coin. And then across time, the durability, the, the fact that if you hold on to this thing today, it's, and that is also a critical element of scarcity, is that if its value increases, people still can't make more of it. That it's still difficult enough to make more of, that it remains the same portion of the economic network that it creates. Literally everything about the different characteristics of money is all about creating consistency and reliability. That's it. Across all the different scales and dynamics of market value and time and life and geography, is it consistent? Is it the same thing everywhere you take it? And, it is, and is it always the same thing in relation to the rest of the economic network as it was when I first got it? The value of a monetary good is its lack of change. This is why it ends up becoming the hedge against uncertainty. Now, the reason we don't think of store of value as, as a primary mechanism or as a primary utility of money is because we don't use money for store of value anymore. We use houses. We use real estate. Now, people don't think about it that way because everybody's like, oh, I want a, want a house with a picket fence. And there's obviously a very explicit utility for the house. But the house, the equity in the house has become the middle-class savings account. You actually buy a house now because it's the way to fight inflation. Again, people don't frame it that way in their minds. But when you are buying a house at $150,000 and you expect in 10 years it's going to be $300,000, $350,000, and you can sell it later and you can go live somewhere else and move somewhere else, which so many people make those decisions with that in mind, understanding that they can take a loan today that they can't afford, but knowing that the house will pay for that loan later plus extra, and they can take equity out of their house and spend it on a vacation, spend it on improvements, whatever it is, it's a savings vehicle. 
It is a savings vehicle. It has become the dominant savings vehicle for our modern economy. And it is specifically because money has stopped doing its one job or its foundational job is probably the better way to put it. This is where Bitcoin is going to fit in. And this is why I think Bitcoin is deeply and profoundly undervalued is because I think what it what the end game of Bitcoin really is of a global sound money that is radically neutral among all political spheres is to demonetize real estate. So why is real estate so unaffordable? Why is it so out of reach for so many people now? Why has the middle class been gutted? Because the the speed that housing and real estate has gone up in price as a vehicle to defend against inflation increases the gap between those who don't yet have those assets. So think about it in the sense that if I buy a $150,000 house today expecting it to um, be worth $300,000 in 10 years, well, the flip side of that is that someone who is going to try to save up $150,000 in 10 years uh, by the time they get to the end of the 10 years trying to save that money, they now have to do it all over again to actually afford the house. They now can only buy half the house. So the very decade they needed to save the money to buy the house can no longer afford them to house. That is literally how bad our money is at saving value over the long term. That it is better that they are incentivized to consume something that they cannot afford today because they will ride the fiat wave of value. They, will, they literally are incentivized. Think about that. They are incentivized to consume a house even if they know they can't produce it. Now, if you think that that fundamental incentive can be pushed into everybody's life, can be made a fundamental element of all of our decision-making across all levels of the economy, and that that does not destroy society over a long enough timeline, then I would argue you don't understand why society works in the first place. Economics matters. What we have done is we have consumed and destroyed all of the capital that we have built up. And there is every indication that we are exhausting ourselves of these resources, that we have pushed our country into a sort of neo-feudalism because we have no upward momentum anymore. The very mechanism by which people would travel from the bottom to the top that would bridge the gap in economic output with time to actually build up that productive base no longer exists. It, it, runs, it runs against you faster than you can run for it. If you have 5% increased productivity and value and skill every year, you still lose. And it is because of the nature of our money. And that 5% is literally being siphoned back up into the financial system to make the already wealthy far wealthier. Every bit of surplus and capital accumulation that you think you are doing is simply being sucked up by the class of people who have access to assets, to all of the critical scarce assets. And even worse is they make it a club. They make it a, a literally permissioned club that you can't get into without a certain credit score, without a certain degree of access or without knowing the right people. They have after hours trading for crying out loud where you have to have a certain amount of money in order to buy things inside, 
basically have an insider trading club where the rest of the economy can't actually do anything. So all of the rich people can literally rug pull you by default because they can make decisions before you are able to access the trading markets in the morning and after the day closes. They can completely wipe you out and rug pull you and there's nothing that you can do. But the reason that market, that, in, that system is so bloated in the first place is because we don't have a good money. Is because in the absence of money, we have to put our retirements into the stock market. You can't put your money in cash. You can't save $150,000 so that you can retire in 20 years. What are you going you, to Did you think you were going to buy a house and sit on it? Because you're saving that $150,000 based on the house price today. I mean, going to just my example, I haven't had my house for a decade. I've had my house for six years. And it has gone from roughly, uh, the, that's the reason I use that as the example. It's gone from roughly one hundred and fifty dollars to $160,000 in 2017 to practically $400,000 today. That's horrible inflation. Horrible. But we're told it's just 2%, right? It's just 2% target. No big deal. My house should literally be worth the exact same or less based on the fact that it should be easier and technologically simpler to build a house today than it was six years ago. It should not be my savings account. But imagine how screwed I would have been if I just stuck $150,000 under my mattress back then in order to save for 10 years from now. It's been six years. I can't even buy my house anymore. Not even close. I can barely buy a third of my house with what I would have saved. With years and years of not consuming things and trying to save that money, I would have had all of that value stolen from me. A, a solid 60, 70% of it. That is why you can't save in money. So when you can't save in money, you have to stick it in the stock market. And now the guys who would have only been there making investments in intelligent pro uh, projects that would have been insanely conservative because they would have known that they're going to lose money if they make bad decisions, now have 20 times the money stuck into their coffers because you had to put your money there. You had to stick it into the index fund. You had to stick it into a BlackRock fund that purchased a bunch of Apple and Microsoft. And oddly enough, in the fine print, you actually hand over your voting rights to BlackRock. You understand, with Bitcoin in a sound monetary system, BlackRock wouldn't even exist. The whole idea of the thing that they do in the economy is totally redundant to the concept of what money is. All money would have to do is be scarce. All it would have to do is just stay the same. And all of BlackRock, 80% of the financial system would just poof out of existence. It would be completely unnecessary. And all their gambling, all their corruption, all their insane speculative nonsense where they just play, they just gamble away and they put insane risks on our retirements and our capital because they're that close to the monetary spigot. In fact, no, it actually makes more sense to think of the financial system as the spigot itself. The Federal Reserve is the water and the financial system is the spigot. It is how the money enters into the system. And because of that, their behaviors, their actions, their culture, all of it com gets completely divorced from economic reality. 
It gets completely divorced from the people actually producing things. It gets completely divorced from the actual sustainable actions and behaviors needed to make society work. It has nothing to do with it. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. All it does is respond to the flow coming through the spigot. And it does not and cannot and has no incentive to care about anything that happens downstream. It is the great misalignment from our value systems and the actual values of maintaining a society. So when we think about what Bitcoin's role is, understand that its fundamental purpose is solving that problem. And that is not a small problem. If it does its job, which it appears more and more readily able to accomplish, and proving with more and more time that it can actually remain that consistent monetary instrument, that radically neutral, apolitical instrument, that uncontrollable, unalterable, tick-tock next block of monetary base ownership and transactions, it will demonetize real estate. Real estate will be very valuable. It always will be because real estate is kind of the prerequisite to all of the other things that we wish to build. You have to have a space to build it. But I genuinely expect over a long enough timeline for half of the real estate market value globally to be sucked into the gravitational pull of Bitcoin. In 30 to 40 years, I, Guy Swan, I, not investment advice, not blah, whatever, I don't care. If Bitcoin provides the role that it has currently provided and, and remains consistent and remains working without any catastrophic failure or, uh, or event, that it will be worth $100 trillion in today's dollars. Now, I find it unlikely, and, uh, but at least possible, that it becomes a, a gold complement and essentially takes a, a level of market capitalization that is comparable to gold in like the nine to $10 trillion range. But what's funny is the reason I think gold doesn't go higher or doesn't take a larger portion of the economic base is specifically because gold can't be used for transactional and settlement, um, fast global settlement. It's because we have a digital economy and gold is a physical thing, which is why I think making the assumption that Bitcoin's superior scarcity to gold and its digital transactional and programmable nature, which means we can do smart contracts, which means we can do elaborate multi-signature setups. We can have um, large shared trusted federations of ownership and uh, shared UTXOs. And we obviously have the Lightning Network and new, a whole swath of various privacy and uh, extremely high volume, very fast, instant, um, extremely cheap global payments networks on top is that even if you remove all of that, Bitcoin is actually a better gold than gold. It's more scarce, it's more divisible, and it's easier to settle. But you add all of that other stuff back on top of it, and what you are literally talking about is a new internet. It is just like the internet is public communications or uh, public infrastructure for communications. Bitcoin is essentially public, decentralized, non-owned infrastructure for money and payments. It is the separation of money and state. And its value will reflect exactly the degree of importance 
that that concept entails. So anyway, that's just my little rant on the store of value concept and why I think uh, uh, even comparing Bitcoin to gold is kind of misunderstanding the superior elements to Bitcoin and uh, why it actually is prime, so incredibly well-suited for the very thing that it is meant to do. Now, Tur and uh, these reports that have come out over the years um, have done such a good job also of just taking simple heuristics, simple like price modeling to understand you know, how many people are underwater, how many people are uh, refusing to uh, you know, move their coins. And the, you know, the simpler model you have for understanding the movement on chain of the value of Bitcoin and and basically find a trend among the noise because obviously everyone moving old coins doesn't mean they're selling but if it is a let's say it's a half you know a 50 percent indicator of uh increased selling or less if you just compare it to bear market moves in volume on like as far as on-chain data and on-chain uh coins that move well then you've still got a 50 percent weighted uh, model of making sense of when people are selling and when people are holding. So the degree of noise isn't so, isn't that big of a concern if we can assume that most of the noise is roughly static or consistent across time. That there's no particular reason why during a bear market, if they're not selling, that some people are moving a bunch more coins than they otherwise would in a bull market or while things are falling or while things are static, that the normal moving of coins around and consolidating and all of those things is just kind of a consistent amount of noise or amount of transactional data in the system. And everything that shows up or remains not present in comparison to that static or that consistent noise across the scope of things is actually where your signal comes out. You know, you can tune out that noise uh, such that the the major differences between old UTXOs moving or old UTXOs staying put is where you can find the interesting content or the in- interesting information that tells us what people are doing with their coins and uh, when there are holder holding patterns and selling patterns. And in that, they've always done a good job of, in fact, I made note of it, uh, not, I guess it was the 2014 and 15 paper zone or whatever, because I've been following Tur and uh, these for a long time. And I always thought particularly when, uh, when I read these kind of the first time they came across my... Uh, my dashboard, so to speak, is that it was a very unhyped or maybe a very just just a reasonable, like very grounded view of like, okay, let's just look at the state of things, look at the mentality and the emotion of the market and look at the data as to the the length of UTXO ownership and these sorts of things. Are people accumulating or are they not? Like not like let's not look for good news for the sake of good news or bad news for the sake of bad news. Just 
let's take some simple heuristics and what zone of the market are we in? And I got to say, they've done an incredible job of being like, when these things drop, I've always read them and I've always been fascinated by how well they just kind of lay out. Okay, we're moving into a new cycle. We're in a heavy accumulation zone. Um, in fact, I think I was doing this show the last time we read one of these. There's, uh, Tur had a Bitcoin in heavy accumulation. And this was, I think, just before the 2020 run-up. When was that? 2019? I guess that was 2019. I don't know. I, I was dig in. It's been a really long time now. Um, God, I've been doing this show for a while. But in the short term, uh, looking at kind of events that might happen, there's definitely, you know, uh, more potential crypto coin collapses and exchanges. Uh, Prime Trust just, so I talked about like uh, BitGo was looking at buying Prime Trust. Uh, we talked about in the guy's take of withdraw everything. Well, now it looks like um, some institution, I can't remember the acronym, something about Prime Trust not being able to, or having to freeze deposits and withdrawals. And then BitGo has also backed out of the deal. They have terminated their intent to purchase the company which usually means they looked at the books and they didn't like what they saw and or the price did not match and they're like i would like to leave this situation now so looks like prime trust isn't doing so hot so yet again there is another recommendation and reminder to please withdraw everything that you have in any exchange or service and if you're using a bitcoin only that is actually reserved and actually knows what they're doing and has been smart about this you'll know that they're going to be encouraging you to withdraw anyway if someone isn't discouraging that then you probably should not be working with that company anyway that is somebody you should probably stay away from like swan river fold uh so many different institutions like the the bitcoin only the people who are here for the long term and they know they're they're producing a service that they're not trying to get you to trade. They don't want you trading crypto crap and they're not dumping that stuff on you. They're going to go out of their way to make sure that you know how to hold your own coins and to encourage you to do so. So these things are always short-term risks. The potential collapse, the potential uh, you know, bankruptcy of some company. And then you have at the exact same time, you have like eight different institutions in a week re-up their ETF application, as well as BlackRock trying to get their ETF, um, which of course we talked about in Trust Me Bro. Uh, if you have not, if you haven't listened to that episode, you really should. Um, and I will also reiterate my conclusion is that I don't think in the long run, even though there could be some very serious fiat fuckery, as Alan Farrington put it, uh, to come about from this because of how it is set up and the fact that it is basically a golden ticket deal for BlackRock and nobody else. Despite that, I think in the long run, it shoots itself in the foot because of this competition. And I really hope, I hope that either BlackRock gets denied and they all get denied, or they all get approved. We either need no ETFs or we need every ETF we could possibly get. Now, in the terms of legal constraints on this, um, I kind of expect the, it to constantly be in a legal, controversial legal position um, just because it threatens so many people who are wealthy and how and why they are wealthy. 
And in the context that it is sound money that discourages debt and discourages deficit spending, the institution, the general institution and the incentive of government is going to be disliking the thing that forces them to have restraint and forces them to actually have monetary consequences to bad monetary decisions, which they are not going to like. I mean, imagine you have a kid who has been eating nothing but candy their entire lives, but they've seen no negative health consequences. They haven't gotten fat or anything because they have some special machine or some special magic portal or whatever as they eat the candy that teleports that candy into other people's bodies. And so everybody else got fat and sick. And then basically what happens is everybody else figures out that this is how this works. And now they have a way to defend themselves so that the portal doesn't work anymore, so that it doesn't send candy to them. And then one by one, they all exit from this system. Well, what that means is their ability to exit means that the candy now goes to that person who's eating it. And that this this bully, this kid who's been eating candy their entire lives is now being told that, by the way, now you're going to get sick. Now you're going to get fat. Now you're going to have all of the consequences of eating candy. And by the way, you're addicted to eating candy. So this is going to be really bad for you. That's what Bitcoin is to the government or not necessarily to the government, to the institutions and the culture of government that have arisen today. What's funny is that it would actually make the very notion of Bitcoin as a sound monetary instrument and something that enforces responsibility, economic responsibility, because it actually transmits information properly through the economy and there are no cheaters. Nobody can cheat that economic signal. It actually produces a good government. If there was ever anything that could make a good government, it requires sound money to do so. So it actually isn't antithetical to the idea of government itself. It's antithetical to the idea of the government and culture that we have now. It's antithetical to corrupt government. It's antithetical to highly irresponsible government. It's antithetical to the idea that you can just spend endlessly and go into debt endlessly and never pay any consequences for it. That is what it is antithetical to. And those people will specifically be the lowest, the morally most reprehensible people and the most corrupt and the most self-centered and most certain that they have the right to eat that candy as much as possible and everybody else should get fat anyway because you know that's the price of maintaining society well they are certain to backlash because they're idiots and they're corrupt and they've grown up in an environment that has nothing to do with reality and they've benefited shockingly from that environment but the thing is, is it won't be until it's obvious that the, their free ride on eating candy indefinitely is being taken away from them, which means that the most likely crackdown will be while Bitcoin is skyrocketing. Um, and, and I love their little sum up here. Actually, I saved it somewhere. So in sum, from a political standpoint... Uh, the most likely period during which Bitcoin could be targeted would be when a new BTC price melt up makes headlines in conjunction with widespread concerns over inflation of the US dollar. So that's when all signs point to uh, the kid who does nothing but eat candy is going to get fat and other people are no longer, they're all turning off whatever that machine is that has enabled him to push all of the disease and fatness and consequences of eating candy onto everyone else. And one by one, they will cut it off 
and it will be represented, it will be transmitted into the market by a falling price of the dollar and a skyrocketing price of Bitcoin. But luckily, especially when there is an awakening, politics will change heavily as well at the same time. The, the people who involve themselves in politics, I mean, you look at it now, look at the political sphere, their importance, the degree that they are trusted, the degree that they are listened to, and where the real conversation about how to run the country and how to run an organized society takes place. It takes place on Twitter. It takes place online. The old powers aren't really the powers anymore. Their stranglehold on the narrative is quickly falling apart. And the fact that they keep squeezing harder and lying harder and more blatantly is only going to accelerate that against them, which means, and this is really something that I've, I've talked about numerous times on the show. I mean, probably go back four or five years. Um, uh, you'll get episodes where I talk about like what will happen or what is, what it's likely to look like. And I didn't have any concrete examples because concrete examples are silly. Um, you know, if you're trying to predict the future, it's the very individual actions and outcomes and events that you can't predict. There's, there's no way to do so. But I, what I saw happening was everything splintering at once, where when the government was ready or recognized, when the current institutions and the current powers that be recognized that Bitcoin was in fact a critical enemy that they had to fight, is they were going to have their hands absolutely full. And in this era of Pax Americana, that we are post the American regime, post the American empire, which is so clear because it used to be that if the State Department, if the United States government and the its top echelon of politicians and uh, corporate and political powers said something or wanted something, that smaller countries all around the world simply had to follow suit. And it was kind of really the, the nuclear bomb on this situation has been Russia and Ukraine, is the Russia and Ukrainian war and the fact that when the U.S. government used the monetary system to shut off as a political weapon to shut off Russia, which it did not even do during the Cold War, the fact that it did that and failed, that the Russian ruble collapsed and then immediately recovered, and that the attempt to economically destroy them has basically turned up nothing of consequence, was kind of the canary in the coal mine for everyone else to vie for a little bit of independence, for everyone to start making decisions and not really caring what the State Department said. And we've seen it in South America. We've seen it in Asia. We've seen it in Africa. We've seen it in the, the brazen and public establishments of establishment of the BRICS nations and the attempts to um, create or create their own monetary agreement outside of the U.S. hegemon of uh, Iran and of Iraq now selling uh, resources in Yuan, which probably oil is very quick to follow. The petrodollar is falling apart. Many different countries throughout the Middle East are talking about trading in other currencies and dollars will not be the universal pricing mechanism for uh, oil. And already uh, many agreements of you're going to buy U.S. treasuries and you're going to put your savings in U.S. treasuries have stopped cold. U.S. treasuries have no foreign buyers anymore. 
And it's literally the tip of the iceberg. It's a hundred different examples of things like this. Of everywhere, people simply aren't afraid of not doing what America says anymore. And all of these, and what's funny is the smaller and less consequential the country is, the more likely they're just going to be ignored when they kind of, you know, just say no. Because we have bigger things to worry about. Like, who's really going to care about that country in Africa that people can't even remember the name of when uh, there's a potential hot war with China and Taiwan on the table? And this is why I think the, the splintering of the entire regime, of the trust in the regime, and importantly, the fear of the regime, causes things to happen on so many levels and in so many places at exactly the same time that it simply can't fight all of the battles. And so it is likely to only fight the ones that it can think it can win or that it thinks are most important. And I think a distracted, too many enemies, too many issues to deal with at the exact same time on top of the political turmoil, on top of the division in the United States, like just locally at home, the disaster of our political environment and Twitter and Elon and quote unquote conspiracy theories and the fact that every uh, quote unquote fringe but actually popular candidate just doesn't agree with the establishment that there's this huge pool of people both on the democrats and republican side that just hate the establishment to just do not buy any of the bullshit that they sell anymore because of the obviousness of these the staggering amount of lies and bold declarations of utter bullshit all throughout 2020 that con- that resulted in a complete lockdown and obliteration of all of our all of our rights over things that they now say is just like oh we just made a mistake we were just wrong we didn't know the science changed it's like well bitch then you shouldn't have had the power to ruin our lives over bullshit science you said you said you knew you said it was 100% when it turns out to be not at all, even 2%, then you should eat your words in a jail sale paying for the damage that you did to everyone's lives, paying for the things that you can't even pay for, like having to watch a family member die and not even get to visit them for nothing, for no reason. When all of those issues have created the turmoil and the inconsistency and the distrust that they have, how much power... How much runway do they really have to fight Bitcoin? And even more so, if they don't win the fight, they just look that much more embarrassing. They just look that much more easy to just ignore, to just deny, to just say no. It's like going back to the kid, the bully who does nothing but eat candy. Is He's a big kid. We always thought he was scary. But then somebody small says no, and it turns out that only eating candy and never exercising and just kind of like standing around looking like a big guy, like, you know, one little kid says no, and then, you know, the bully tries to beat him up, and he just kind of like darts through his legs and like runs around him, and the bully just kind of looks like an idiot, like clobbering and like lumbering around, and he just can't catch the kid because the kid's fast. And then everybody on the playground sees it, and they're like, why are we listening to this guy again? And then maybe there's, you know, two or three kids that have stood up to the bully or insulted the bully, and they're really kind of the main concerns. But really what's happening is that everybody's just kind of ignoring him now. 
kind of not doing what he says, or they, they do what he says in spirit only. And they like kind of comply and they like, and it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to stick to our side until you go into the bathroom. Then we're just going to run around the playground and people kind of keep creeping over the boundary lines and hanging out with people. They're not supposed to hang out, even though the bully says you're not allowed to hang out with them, but the bully's kind of got his hands full. And even worse is the people who were supposed to be on the bully's side. The, the bullies on country hate him and distrust him because he literally treated them as bad as he treated everybody else. The last vestiges of that bully's power is the fact that he still has some cronies. He still has some people that he gives the candy to and who will do his bidding. But all the honest people who mistakenly bought his story for so long are waking up to that fact that it was just a story, that it was a lie, which means ultimately that the bully's enterprise is likely to have a massive change of management. And Bitcoin is that very tool of exit. And if for no other reason, as a hedge against the political system from fundamental risks and systemic risks of both the financial system and the political system. If nothing else, I, I know they said uh, they gave the recommendation of 3 to 5%. Actually, that might be in episode 2. That might be in the part 2 of this. Yeah, I don't think I've covered that yet. Okay, well, now that I've gotten ahead of myself, uh, let's go ahead and close this one out, and we will have part 2 tomorrow to finish this out and talk more explicitly about the amount of investment and how to think of that investment in Bitcoin and depending on the strategy you want to take or the value you think Bitcoin is going to most provide in the short, mid, or long term, what sort of allocation makes the most sense? And uh, I think they just have a wonderful breakdown uh, on that entire topic. And this is just a really great piece. So I highly recommend. Stay tuned. Do not forget to subscribe because you're not going to want to miss part two. And uh, a huge thank you to Fold and to CoinKite for giving me for having such a great fold stack and letting me have this easy way to invest in the seeming low cost or no cost way to invest in development um, and have a stack that I'm forced to put aside. Honestly, it's just really great. It just feels awesome to be able to dedicate that back to development in the space. And of course, CoinKite for keeping it safe. So I know I haven't lost any of it. It is safe in my possession because I got myself a cold card and that's where my Bitcoin stay. Check them both out. Links and goodies in the show notes. And I will catch you with part two of how to position for the Bitcoin boom tomorrow. This is Bitcoin Audible. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. I learned very early the difference between knowing the name of something and knowing something. Richard P. Feynman